Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest on Shelf Life this week is Patrick Gale, the best-selling author of Notes from an Exhibition, A Place Called Winter and Take Nothing With You. His latest novel, Mother's Boy, is out today. Patrick, hello, welcome. Hello, Alex. It's a treat to be here. It's a treat to have you here. You've been high on my, high on my list to get on the podcast since I started it. Why don't we start off by talking about Mother's Boy? Uh, can you explain to anyone listening what it's about? and and why you decided to write it absolutely it's um historical it's very loosely based on the lives of two real people poet charles causley and his washerwoman mother laura and what i've done is something i've done in my, my previous attempts at historical fiction which is I've, I've honored the facts that i know and then i've shamelessly made up the bits to join them together so I, I've taken a big risk in that I've, I've, I've kind of outed Charles Causley um, as, a, as, a, as a queer cultural icon. <laughs> I have to say, I've done this with the blessing of the Charles Causley Trust, though I know I'm going to upset a lot of old men with beards down here. But uh, <laughs> um, I think it needed doing. And the funny thing is, it, it's the story of how Charles became a poet. So for most of the book, he's not a poet. He's, he's trying to be other things. And a lot of it's about his very early childhood and about Laura's um, struggle really to cope with having this genius child, because she was a woman who had barely learned to read and write. And uh, um, you know, she had quite a fast learning curve with him. But I, it, it's a funny one because uh, although I, I say I, I've kind of outed him, um, I'm going to be the first one to jump down the neck of any journalist who says, who calls him gay, because I don't think you can use that term of a man who was clearly never comfortable with his sexuality. So I guess we have to, we have to agree a term. I think we could call, because I reckon we can call him queer. I think that's all right. But gay for me always implies a certain positivity, positivity and I'm not sure he had that. So how much of it, it is made up so is there evidence that he was queer i've found what i think is evidence yes so at one point in the novel uh, by the time we've got into his involvement in the navy in the second world war i have him having a secret obviously affair with a fellow officer and that is based on um a letter i found in his stash of private letters and it's a, a chilling letter from a man with whom he clearly had some kind of a relationship who begins the letter by saying my dear Charles thank you for your letter I, I can only hope that my wife didn't open it and read it before she forwarded it to me uh, it's what basically one it's a kind of dear John letter but it's also saying I know you know and you know I know and we're never going to talk about this again and I think it's very significant that Charles had kept that letter to his dying day, because I, I think it's evidence of an affair. Um, 
and that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> but also, also I based the novel very closely on his little tiny diaries. I don't know if you remember those, those really miniature appointment diaries that people used to give you for Christmas. Well, you're far too young to remember, but this is before the internet and mobile phones, but you had little <laughs> tiny pocket diaries to remind you what you were doing that week. He wrote his personal diaries in these. So in tiny, tiny handwriting, I wrecked my eyesight spending months with a magnifying glass, deciphering them. And they're not thrilling. They're never going to be published, I don't think. They're, they're clearly not written for publication or for posterity. But they have glimpses all the way through of what I instantly recognised as a queer sensibility. Um, I, I totally identified with this portrayal they give of a, um, a boy stuck in a provincial backwater with a mother who doesn't understand him and no kindred spirits and his hungrily reading the latest books from Isherwood and Auden and just longing for something to change in his life. And then every now and then there's a very gay moment. So there's a wonderful scene where he and his best friend Ginger go to Plymouth for the day, which was you know, half an hour away on a train and find themselves surrounded by sunbathing sailors on Plymouth Hoe. And Charles writes in the diary, oh, how I wished I could draw exclamation <laughs> underlined and I don't think a straight man would have written that um I think my case rests there, <laughs> there had you decided that you wanted to write about Charles before you did this research or were you just researching to find out a bit more about this one and then discovered there was a novel within it oh I'd already decided I wanted to I'm I'm the patron one of the two patrons along with Sir Andrew Motion of the Charles Causley Trust, which is the charity set up after Charles's death in the early 80s to keep his memory alive and to spread the news of his work, but also to carry on the work he did encouraging um, children to love poetry and to write. And um, when, I, when I took on, initially I was just a director of the Trust, and when I was appointed as a director, I immediately thought I must find out much more about this man because I knew his poems, but I didn't know about his life. And as soon as I found out about the life, I couldn't drop the idea of eventually writing a novel about him. It, most of my novels have an unanswered question that fires them along. And the unanswered question in Charles's case is just huge because this is a man who clearly was totally liberated as lots of provincial men and women were by the Second World War, by being given this cast iron excuse to leave his provincial backwater and see the world and meet men and women quite unlike himself and have, okay, terrifying experiences, but also experiences that were mind blowing in the best sense. And yet after that huge adventure, after he's been to Australia and the South Pacific and all that, he chose to come back to the tiny town in Cornwall where he had grown up and to become a primary school teacher in the little primary school where he had been just up the road and to live with his mother. And he lives with his mother until she dies in you know, the um, late 70s. And then only then he kind of becomes more of a public figure and starts to go on British Council tours and things. But it, it's not a typical poet's life. We think of poets as being hellraisers, heartbreakers, they either commit suicide or they're alcoholic or whatever. Charles is so careful, so controlled um, and 
so without a breath of scandal, but naturally I was completely fascinated. Um, and I just, I just think it's on one level, it's, it's a terribly sad story from our 21st century queer perspective, because it's a story of repression. It's a story of a man who actively chooses to put all his feelings back deep into the box and never let them out again. But on the other hand, it has a happy ending because it's because of that act, huge act of repression, that he becomes such a wonderful poet. Because in later life, whenever anyone said to him, Charles, why haven't you written your memoirs? Because he did occasionally write little glimpses, little essays about his life, and they were very funny. And he always said the same thing, which was, I don't need to, because it's all in the poems. But I think that was a very sly answer because yes, it's all in the poems, but my God, it's, it's encoded. You have to pick them apart, but it's it's there if you look closely enough. Well, I think we will talk a bit more about Charles and his poems in a little while, but uh, let's get on with this podcast. So I've asked you to pick seven books that have changed or influenced your life in some way. Did you find it difficult to pick just seven? Very, yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> It's funny, actually, whenever you have a new novel out to promote, you regularly get asked these lists of books. And um, <clears throat> I made a big effort today not to put Middlemarch on the list, which I always <laughs> do. It, it's just a, an undying work of genius, and it's so easy to talk about. But, um, you know, it is hard to pick just them. But I, what's quite nice with your list is that these are books that change my life. So they're not just great books. They're books I have a, there's a very close personal attachment to them for different reasons so that that was relatively easy well let's start then with your first one uh what is it what's it about and why did you pick it okay so this is the wizard of earthsea it's the first part of a, a trilogy of novels i uh, in my day they were for children now they might say they're for young adults uh, by the great canadian science fiction writer primarily ursula le guin and this is one of those books that I remember obsessing me as a boy, completely obsessing me. I was a, uh, an early adopter of the Puffin Club. I belonged to the Puffin Club. It was a brilliant marketing scheme because I bought my four novels a month um, and devoured them dutifully. But I remember this came to me through the Puffin Club. And it was one of those moments when I read the book and thought, I can't quite believe this book is allowed somehow. It felt so... It felt as if it was saying forbidden things, which is completely delirious for any child. Um, and I think there's, it's no accident, really, that it claimed me so, because I think a lot of queer children, um, LGBT, LGBTQIA, whatever, children, get very instinctively drawn to novels about fantasy or transformation, to novels about monsters or aliens because they finally find something they can identify with. Um, what the standard fare when I was a very little boy was fairy tales and stories of princes and princesses. And if, if you have a sense that you're not like other boys, um, which I certainly did from the age of about seven or six, you struggle to identify and you, you find you often end up identifying with the villains. You look outside the story of the prince and princess, you look at Rumpelstiltskin or the witch and Hansel and Gretel, because those, those actually are the queer figures. They're, they're, they're the ones who break the rules, who aren't, aren't normal. 
Wizard of Earthsea is a, a thrilling story. I think even adults would find it thrilling uh, to do with magic and a young man who finds he has gifts and a destiny. And it's it's a great, um, it's a Bildungsroman. It's about how he becomes a man over the course of the three books and learns to harness his powers. But uh, it is so, so much darker than Harry Potter. It's, it's, it's a book about evil, actually. Um, it's up there with Alan Garner's Weird Stone of Brisingarman as one of those children's books that really should be X-rated for the dreams it's likely to give you. I, in fact, just talking about it, I, I'm getting goose flesh and wanting to go and read it again. So I, I hugely recommend it to any adults out there who, who love fantasy. Ursula Le Guin is also a, a pioneer, was a great pioneer um, for all queer readers because she, rather like Iris Murdoch, um, was very playful in her use of sexuality and gender. I mean, she famously uh, wrote science fiction novels that imagined planets in which men married men and gave birth. Um, you know, quite, quite wild stuff. So um, I, I'm never quite sure why she chose to write these books for children. I suspect she didn't think of them as being for children. And a brave publisher just thought, actually, no kids will love this. Um, but no, amazing stuff. So at the age of, sorry, I'm picking up on, at the age of six or seven, you realised that yeah. you were quite the same as, as other boys. Totally, I realised, yeah, yeah. And, and I, and funnily enough, I remember, uh, and I put this in one of my novels, a very autobiographical novel called Rough Music, I, I remember chancing on the fairy tales of Oscar Wilde, um, the Happy Prince and other stories. It was my big sister's copy, it was a little, uh, puffin. I can even see the cover of it still. And reading those, and I didn't know anything about Oscar Wilde and his story, but I sensed these were not like normal fairy tales because they are pretty queer. They're, they're, they're strange and sad and not comforting and they're odd. And I that became, along with Ursi, was one of those sort of foundation texts for my, my journey of self-discovery, I think. I think what often happens with, with gay children is long before they know they're gay, they just have a sense that um, they need to start pretending if they're going to fit in because they, they, they don't, they, they look around them and they see they're not having the standard responses. Either they don't like football or if they're a girl, they don't like being a girl particularly. They don't want to be a princess, they want to be Wonder Woman or whatever. Um, and, and, and I think novels like these are, are, are fantastic sort of life rafts for them because they give them a safe place in which they can try other possibilities on for size while officially doing something that is entirely socially approved which is reading a book that's it nobody can see what's going on uh, in your no, head whilst you're no. reading all they can exactly. see is that you're reading uh, so yeah, you've, yeah. you've never or have you gone into the realms of writing fantasy yourself only in my short stories and even then pretty cautiously. I've written a, a lot of ghost stories, I suppose. Um, I do love science fiction. I'm very lazy about reading it though. I tend to wait for an amazing film to come along and just enjoy that instead. <laughs> um, but yeah, my God, no, I watched the whole of, of the original Battlestar Galactica series and um, I don't know, I, I, I was blown away by Dune recently. I, I, I do love it. Um, 
but I don't think you have to write everything you love. I think sometimes it's fine for a writer just to have a, it's not, it's not even a guilty pleasure. It's, it's an honest pleasure that, that doesn't encroach on what you write yourself. Do you think you ever would be tempted to go into writing a, a long form story set in a fantasy or in a different genre than, than what you currently write? I think, I think what, would, what would tempt me hugely, and it'll never happen, but um, if I was ever asked to adapt such a book for the screen, I would really enjoy doing that. Um, so for instance, if somebody reading this is a producer who wants to buy the rights to Earthsea and get a new film made, I'll, I'm, I'm up there. Patrick's available. (laughs) (laughs) What's your second choice? Oh, now this is um, a book which will, a series of books, which will be instantly recognised by anyone my ancient age and completely not recognised by anybody your age. It's called Voices. Voices was a, a really trailblazing series of books produced by Penguin. Um, and they were poetry anthologies, but they were unbelievably cool ones. Uh, God knows they must have cost a fortune for Penguin to produce because they were large format paperbacks with very generous margins. It was beautifully designed and they were full of really arresting images alongside the poems, often images that didn't directly relate to the poems. They were just very, very exciting photographs, close-ups from old paintings, whatever. Um, And I remember I first came across the adult ones. So there were, were, I think, four were produced. And you can still find them out there. They're hugely prized, but they do show up on aid books occasionally. Um, There were four adult ones. And then because of the huge success of those, they then produced uh, some for children called Junior Voices, which were done in exactly the same way. The only difference was that the poems were more suitable perhaps for children. And I really thought, I thought very hard about where did I first come across a poem by Charles Causley? And I realized it was in these collections. He's one of those poets where he's very, very widely anthologized. So you get a lot of poetry lovers or, or just general readers who don't know that they know Charles Corsley's work uh, until you mention a few of the titles, like Timothy Winters. And you say Timothy Winters to people and often they go, oh yes, and they immediately rattle off the first few lines of it. Because Timothy Winters is one of his poems that appeared in um, uh, one of the first copies of Voices. And I remember being totally blown away by it. I had no idea who Charles Causley was and I forgot his name almost immediately, but I remembered the poem. And then I think a bit later, we had to learn the poem by heart at school as lots of children do. And it's a very, very shocking poem, actually. It's very short and it has this bouncy rhythm. So you think it's almost like a comic poem and it's rhythm. And yet it's about a horribly neglected little boy. And it's clearly based on the many children Charles came across in his time as a primary school teacher in one of the poorest um, part areas of a very poor town. So in, in Launceston there were proper slums and there were children who had um, earth floors in their houses and had to go up the street to get water. So he knew real poverty and neglect. And Timothy Winters is a, a very bold poem about this child who somehow is surviving just about and coming to school with mysterious bruises and signs of starvation. And 
Um, it's it's a very angry poem, and it, it I love the fact that it often gets trotted out by the NSPCC or whoever when they're doing fundraising. It, it has this this kind of blasting quality that the best poems should have. But voices, I so recommend. I, I I've over the years I've collected the full set, and I reg they're, they're one of the books I reach for if I'm stuck in bed with with flu or whatever, and I perhaps don't have the mental energy to focus on a novel. They are, they just, oh, they're beautiful. They should be reissued immediately, just as they were, because they're very stimulating and funny and moving, and they're brilliant books for people who think they don't like poetry, because they make you realize, actually, I do like poetry, I just don't know much about it, or I don't know where to start. That's the commonest thing you hear when people say they don't read poetry. They just say, well, who do I read? I don't know who to read. Um, and I personally, uh, I'm among their number, I'm really pretty ignorant about contemporary poetry. And all the poets I know are ones I happen to have stumbled on at book festivals. So what I always say to people is just, when you go to your local book festival, book a ticket for the poetry reading, even if it's somebody you've never heard of, because that will bring it alive for you. And so many poets now are becoming really good performers as well, which is, incredibly exciting. So if you hear Vanessa Kisule or Inua Ellens or, um, I don't know, Holly McNeish reading their work, I mean, it's more like a performance than a reading and it's it's hugely beguiling. Anyway, end of my poetry rant. <laughs> Read right. more poetry, people. <laughs> I think you're right though, because I mean, I'm uh, when I read poetry, very rarely, but I, I enjoy it. And I just think it's it's a daunting topic because I don't know where to start and what I'll exactly. like. You don't know where to start. And poetry also, because it's the poor relation in publishing terms, it has nothing like the marketing machine assigned to it that novels do. I mean, because novels regularly make thousands and thousands of pounds for their publishers. Of course, lots of money is spent on making sure you know what the latest novels are, what they're about, you know, the love life of the reader, the, the writer, rather. Um, poems very rarely get that treatment. I think the one exception is once a year when a collection of poems wins um, in the best in category for the Costa, and then suddenly we all have a chance to pick up a new poem. So if nothing else, do that once a year. You know, in, Andrew McMillan's Physical, for instance, I remember when that was wonderful, very queer, very, very touching collection. When that, when that won the Poetry Prize for the Costa, I made a point of rushing out to buy it. And it's led me on a lovely kind of rabbit hole of poetry because when you start following Andrew on Twitter, you then discover the other poets he likes and then you read those and so it goes on. In your author's note to Mother's Boy, you include a poem of Charles Causley's uh, Angel Hill. And yes. I read that, uh, I mean, I read it after I'd read the book, which I think was probably the right way to do it. Uh -huh. And I, I, I sort of, because I then knew what was going on sort of maybe in Charles's head when he wrote this, it suddenly made more sense to me. And I think sometimes maybe I just need to slow down a bit with the poetry and, and, and absorb it more and, and try to understand it. Um, and I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier where Horsley says, actually his life is in the poems. Because for me, Angel Hill was kind of proof that what you had written was probably true. Mm. 
Well, that's my hope. I mean, I, that's why I put that novel, that poem at the end of the novel, is in a way that, that poem was always going to be the end point of my story and my head, the climax of the story was always going to be the scene that inspired him to write Angel Hill, which is a, a terrible scene from a romantic point of view, because the, I don't want to give too much of the ending away, but the reader is um, confronted with the possibility of a happy ending only to see it snatched away. And it's a, a scene of terrible betrayal, really, and denial and, and repression. And then you read that poem and you think, actually, that's this poem is is a confession. It's it's not it's, it's a confession of something terrible that, that Charles knows he has done, I think. Um, and yet he disguises it by using the which he often did, the sort of ballad form. So it has this recurring theme, di da di da di da di da. The rhythm is very bouncy. You can imagine it has been beautifully set to music a few times, and all the way through is this recurring uh, refrain where the the I of the poem, the Charles figure, says no, never, no, never, and that he's just denying it. And there's this incredibly strong line in it, which I I seized on and and used as the basis for an entire chapter earlier in the book. Um, for people who don't know the poem, it, it's about uh, a man who is suddenly surprised on his own doorstep by a sailor who says, you know, remember me, basically. Uh, we were in, in the war together and we did all these things together. And one of the things the sailor says is, I bound your wounds and you bound mine. And I just think that line is, is it gives me goosebumps. I think it's, it's very potent. Um, and there's a, a kind of buttonholing of somebody and saying, I know who you are. And then right at the end, as the sailor dismissed and betrayed, walks away, he he sings this, this sinister little song about how I will come and find you one fine day. So it's like, a, um, on the one hand, I, it can be read as a ghost story. You can read that poem and pretend that actually the sailor is dead. Um, or you can read it as a flesh and blood sailor. And it's, it's typical of Causley that he leaves that ambiguity floating in the air. So you, you can make your own mind up. But I've, I've definitely made my, my <laughs> mind up and he's a flesh and blood sailor for me. I agree. Um, what's your next choice? So my next choice is Howard's End by Ian Forster. I could have picked any number of Forster novels, but this is the one I remember reading as a teenager. Um, we, we had to do a passage to India, I think, for... I think it was for A-level, actually. It must have been A-level. But I, I couldn't stop with just that. And I just read every Forster novel I could get my hands on, including, funnily enough, Morris, which had not long been published for the first time um, by, by, by Penguin. But Howard's End, I think, is pretty damn perfect. It, it's the most brilliantly structured book in that it begins with this um, brilliant, very simple um, sort of push forward to get the plot in motion, which is uh, a mysterious, rather poetic woman leaving, unexpectedly leaving her beautiful house to a girl she hardly knows, rather than leaving it to her own family. And then the rest of the plot is about what happens as a result of that unexpected legacy and the family's decision to keep it secret and not to let the girl inherit the house and so on. And yes, it's been wonderfully filmed by Merchant Ivory, but the novel is so much subtler. And at, at its heart are these siblings, the, the Schlegels, 
who are the kind of family I longed to belong to as a, a dreamy teenager, because they, they live for art. They're rather impractical and bohemian, and they have just enough money they've inherited to live independently as three siblings. And I, I found that completely compelling, the idea of these artistic siblings with no, no visible parents, but they had a nice house <laughs> where they, they could have go to concerts and things. But it's also very much a novel about the clash between people who value art and who value vision and brutally practical people who only value money and business and all that entails. And I first read this novel, I suppose, as Margaret Thatcher was beginning to exert her baleful influence on the country. And it, it really politicised me, I think, in a funny way. I, I, I really, my only politics up to that point as a teenager had been CND, which was pretty standard. I mean, like everyone, I had the Atomcraft Nine Danker button on my jacket and so on. But Howard Zen really made me think about in terms of us and them and what side I wanted to be on. Um, and although yeah, we now know it was written by uh, a gay writer, um, it's 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 a book not so much about sexuality as about um, value values, and it's it's really pretty challenging. I also love it for the only novel in which a man is killed by a bookcase, <laughs> which I think is rather lovely. Um, sort of sweet poetic justice. There's this this poor bumbling man who who unwittingly makes a lot of the plot happen, um, dies by having a load of books falling on him. <laughs> which I just think is is a mad touch that Forster throws in near the end. It's a fear, though, that some of us live with daily. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. But you never forget that books are made of wood. <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned the Merchant Ivory adaptation. And also earlier, you mentioned that, you know, you you'd be tempted to write a screenplay for Ursula Le Guin and the Earthsea series. It's normally around this point that I'd ask about TV adaptations and film adaptations. But I want to talk instead about Man in an Orange Shirt because you have written for TV, but it wasn't yes. it wasn't an adaptation of an existing novel. No, although <laughs> the BBC maddeningly announced it repeatedly as an adaptation. And so poor booksellers were plagued for weeks afterwards. People say, Can I have this book, Man in the Orange Shirt? And I I still get people asking me online, you know. Why can't I find Man in the Orient Shirt? And I have to tell them that it's, it's a DVD, it's not a novel. Um, so it was an odd departure for me in that it was a completely original screenplay. And I was approached, well, I was approached and they, they, they simply asked, was I interested in writing an original drama to mark the anniversary of 1966's or 68's partial decriminalization of homosexuality? Um, and I jumped at the chance, but I warned them immediately. I said, look, I, I don't want to write something celebratory. This will not be Russell T. Davis. It won't be fabulous. Because I, what I wanted to do was to write a story that um, made gay viewers challenge themselves and ask, well, are we really happier now? Are things so much better now? Um, but I also <clears throat> wanted to honour the countless heterosexual women who were so damaged by the criminalisation of homosexuality because it led to so many artificial marriages. So many women found themselves married to men who really didn't, didn't want to be married and had only done it to hide. Um, and I think that must have done terrible, terrible damage. And as I've said in interviews, 
it was based in part on my own parents' marriage. Um, they were happily married for all intents and purposes. Um, but when my mother was pregnant with me, so nearly 10 years, nine years into the marriage, um, she found a stash of love letters in my father's desk, which she realized very quickly were not from a woman. They'd been best men at each other's weddings. They'd actually been friends from the age of about 13 or 12. They'd fought side by side in the war. They were best men for each other. They were each godfathers to the other's firstborn child. I mean, it, it was a really close thing. And then she found these, what she said were passionate love letters, but she burnt them and she never told my father she had found them. It was so typical of them that this powder cake was never fully exploded. Um, and she simply waited and then one by one told us as we grew up, <laughs> darling, you know, you've often wondered about our marriage as well, and then told the story. And the funny thing is when she told me, she obviously thought she was telling me um, weirdly. She thought she was telling me, don't worry, you may think you're gay, but your father thought that and look how happy I made him. So she thought she was telling me a happy story. And of course, what I read it as was a total horror story. Um, but it made me much, much closer to my father. Though being a member of my family, I never told him I knew. We just became much closer. Um, and so what I did in Man Orange Shirt was to take that horror story and then imagine what would have happened if she had told him she knew. Because I know they would never have divorced. They didn't approve of divorce. So they would have come up with some terrible compromise. And that compromise would have had lasting, damaging effects, I think, on both them and their children. So there you go. <laughs> but I'm amazed at how well it did. I mean, it was incredibly well acted and beautifully filmed. I mean, they, they BBC tr treated it like a movie, really. It had that sort of attention to detail and a, a fantastically weepy score. Um, and what I'm, I'm really touched, it's sort of gone all around the world and it, it still gets broadcast again in different countries around pride the pride season it gets shown again so um i'm really thrilled but sadly it hasn't led to a whole load of other bits of screenwriting for me I, it has led to commissions i've written plenty of scripts on the basis of it but nothing yet has been made i live in hope <laughs> oh, you preempted my question there um, oh, right. so, so, so would you, would those commissions be original commissions or would you look at adapting some of your own novels? They were different. So, I mean, the most obvious one of those commissions that came from the BBC was to adapt my novel, A Place Called Winter. And uh, I got a long way with that. I wrote the first episode and I planned the whole thing out. Um, and quite suddenly with no explanation other than saying they weren't doing costume drama anymore, which blatantly wasn't true, the BBC dropped it. They dropped the project. And at that stage, the BBC was still very much the only broadcaster a UK producer could go to, really, for a project like that. I think it's changed now. Um, Netflix has shown that they're very interested in costume drama, too. So rather excitingly, um, the rights have then been picked up by Julian Morris, who was one of the actors who starred in um, Man in the Orange Shirt and who has since finally come out. Um, and he wants to star in A Place Called Winter, and he is... Uh, very well backed by a Hollywood production company. So uh, watch this space. I think I think it will happen. It will just take a long time to happen. But, uh, oh, well, I'm 
very pleased to hear that. You know that a place called Winter is, is my favourite of yours. Oh, and well, I think we'll see. You, I think, think, I think it, would, it would make great TV. And yeah. I see it as, as four movie length episodes. So it's, it's a long, it's a big story. Um, but I've said I, I want to do it with four episodes, each one focusing on a different setting of the book. Yeah. And each one with a different heroine because it's very much a novel about the four women who lead Harry into becoming himself at the end. So we'll oh. see. Well, fingers crossed it will emerge soon. Yes, we'll see. And then the other, well, there have been several other commissions that have all so far come to nothing. Um, uh, one of them was, again, from the BBC to adapt Edith Wharton's masterpiece, The Age of Innocence. And I, I'm gutted. I really loved my, I was very proud of my scripts. And, and the BBC said they loved the scripts too. So I, again, I don't know what's going on. Um, and I'm also, I've written a, 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 a sort of lesbian bodice ripper based on a fantastic short story by Rose Tremaine called The Housekeeper, which imagines one of the secret lesbian love affairs between Daphne du Maurier and in this case, uh, the housekeeper of a big old Cornish house. And it's a piece of fan fiction. Uh, because Tremaine is actually imagining what led to the creation of the, the terrifying villainess, Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca. So it's it's one of those stories that's, it's a kind of meta fiction. So on the one hand, you've got a bit of truth. You've got Daphne du Maurier having one of the secret love affairs we knew she had, but you've also got this imagined story about the creation of Rebecca. And then even within that is yet another story, which is about the, the weirdly liberating effect on um, the housekeeper of being turned into a monster on the page, um, which gives her the courage ultimately to leave the big house where she works and be herself, um, be a fine upstanding lesbian in the community. So. <laughs> and I think that may yet happen. It's, it's currently with some very exciting actors. It's, it's got two huge female roles, but um, if, I, if I could just pick two names out of the air, I'd like, Jodie Comer and Rachel Weisz. Uh, and I say that because it's currently with their agent. But <laughs> uh, what's your next choice? Uh, well, my next choice is probably quite unsurprising for people. And it is Alan Hollinghurst's The Swimming Pool Library. I read this novel when it first came out. I was 22, I think living in a little bedsit in Notting Hill. I've not long left university. I was trying to become a writer. I, I'd written my first novel and I was working on my second and out of the blue, totally left field, comes this highly literary, but deeply pornographically gay novel. And to my amazement, it was being published by Chatto and Windus, the Virginia Woolf's publishing house. It was, um, very well reviewed right the way across the board in all most respectable papers. And it blew me away both as a novel, but also as a, an example of how things can change. Because when I started writing, I assumed that the only publishers who would take the openly queer fiction that I was working on would be Gay Men's Press or whoever. I, I thought it would have to be a very marginal publishing house. And Alan certainly was, was the first British novelist, I think, that really changed that for us. Um, up until that, I'd read a lot of queer fiction before then, even when I was a schoolboy, but it was all American. Um, and, um, and probably most of it was published by queer presses in America. 
I think I think the the breakthrough book that came out a little bit before a swimming pool library was um, a boy's own story by Ed White, um, which I remember devouring as well. But that didn't have quite the same thunderous effect on me. I think because it was so American. The thing about uh, swimming pool library is that it it's written from the heart of the establishment. It's very much about um, ultra respectable people. It's very white, it's very um, privileged as a, as a text, but I think that's entirely on purpose. Um, it's pretty devastating. And, and of course, the other thing we tend to forget about that novel is that it was written in the era of AIDS. Um, and there's a little line, I think, on the very first page where the narrator is, and you forget this very quickly, it's one of those lines you forget as you carry on reading the book, but he says, uh, he describes the pages his writing as being like pages that are so far in the past, it's as if they're burning as he's writing them, that they're burning up, because it's a novel about the period just before AIDS changed everything for so many of us. And it was published at a time when we didn't yet know there would be, a, if not an end to AIDS, then a way of living with HIV that you didn't, it wasn't a guarantee you were going to die. Um, it's amazing how rapidly we, we forget that. <laughs> but I think for those of us who, who were gay and were writing, this was a period when there was suddenly very, very strong political pressure from our peers to address the AIDS epidemic and to write about it. And what Alan did, I think, was a very clever sideways approach. So rather than writing about it, he wrote about the absence of it. Uh, he wrote about what might have led to it or whatever, but he withheld all moral judgment. So the, the characters in the Swimming Pool Library often behave appallingly, but he withholds judgment. It's a, it's a very, I know a lot of people don't like his novels for this reason, they find them cold. Um, but I think if you remember the, the period in which that book came out, it's anything but cold. I think it's, it's written from a combination of anger and fear. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, a huge, I'm a huge admirer of, of his work. And, um, and you know, he is a friend as well. Uh, but yeah, that doesn't always follow if you, you love someone's work and then they become a friend and it can cloud the friendship. But I, but there's something Alan does, which is so consistent, I think. Um, anyway. <laughs> that, that was so interesting because the way that you talked about the swimming pool library it is kind of the, the, the feelings that I had when I read The Line of Beauty. Um, wow. Because I, up until that point, I was probably late teens, early 20s, and I, up until that point, I'd, I'd read kids' books, I'd read all that, Harry Potter's grown up with those. I was reading James Patterson's and things like that. And then I sure. read this book, and I thought, I didn't know that you could do this. I didn't know this yeah. was allowed. Um, and I think things have changed, and I think writers like Hollinghurst, like yourself, have changed certain sort of genres where gay men, lesbians, they're, they're more visible in, in fiction. And I think they're becoming more visible in what you would say commercial fiction as well. Uh, yes, I think they are. And I think, but I think what, what Alan did and what I've tried to do to some extent is, is to be totally egalitarian in, in that we, we 
write about gay experience, but in a literary voice. Um, it's not okay. Alan gets a bit a bit pornographic sometimes, but then he's writing about sex, so you can't not. But um, I suppose we make no allowances. It's just a subject. It's yeah. just there. I mean, Iris Murdoch started it. I remember discovering Iris Murdoch in my early twenties and and reading, devouring all of them. And she used to just occasionally pop a gay character into the mix. Um, and as far as she was concerned, she was writing about love and love as a dangerous thing that could cause upset and turmoil. Um, and she withholds all judgment about sexuality. It's just, it's just love and, and sexuality as a force. And that was really startling. I think the first one of hers I read that, that had a gay character in was um, The Bell. And I couldn't believe this was a book my parents had read. And it was on their bookshelves. And I read it with no idea there was going to be this gay thing. And oh my God, suddenly there's this man sitting in another man's lap. And I thought, my God, this is just mind blowing. Um, but what was really mind blowing is that this was a woman who was a respected Oxford don and philosopher. And she was at the heart of the literary establishment. And yet she was honoring my sexuality with the same attention to detail she would pay to a heterosexual marriage or whatever. Do you think that writing uh, gay characters from a, a, a gay perspective has held your career back or are there, are there chances that you could have taken had you written a straight love story? Well, I have written straight love stories. Um, I don't think it ever held me back. I, I think initially it might have done um, because my early novels probably because I was nervous and very young, uh, a broadly comic. And it's terribly easy for the literary establishment to dismiss comic fiction or not to take it very seriously. Um, but no, I think, and I think I directly benefited from the work both Ed White and Alan Hollinghurst have done in, in proving to mainstream publishers that they could make money out of gay stuff. So very early on, I was warned. Um, I was briefly published by Chateau and Windus. They did two of my novels very early on. And a gay member of their sales team took me on one side and warned me. And in those days, you know, it's pre-digital. The salesman had to go around with these enormous portfolios to the shops, which would have a sort of spread of jacket images and you know, like a giant catalog, I suppose. And he said, I think you need to see this. And it was um, the description for my novel, Little Bits of Baby, which is a novel, it's not overtly gay, but it has a gay character at the heart of it. Um, and in the sort of instructions to bookshops, it said, you, basically, you may not wish to order many copies of this because being a gay themed novel, it's unlikely to sell many copies. And that was quite startling because that was an instruction from the publishers of Alan Hollinghurst. So it shows that they didn't learn the lesson immediately, but they learned it pretty fast. And I certainly let them know without getting the salesman into trouble. I let them know that I had seen this and that I was very upset because I knew from the fan letters I was getting that the vast majority of my readers, as they still are, were heterosexual women. Um, 
who I, I think are very open-minded and always have been in their reading and are just interested in relationships and reading about relationships. And they, they like the forensic attention to relationships I pay and they don't care really what the sexuality is that's involved. That's really interesting. Working in a commercial bookseller as I was say 10 years ago, and you often uh, had conversations where with publishers where books were discussed and it's like well it's not quite the right fit for your shops because there were LGBT characters in it and I can even now see 10 years on how different things are and yeah. and, and you well, know money, money talks my sales talks. talk yeah and I think um, young adult fiction is helping a lot as well because there's a lot of gay themed books for young adults that are just yeah. selling the numbers and Very true and you just have to look at the enormous commercial success of sarah waters and jeanette winterson to see that it didn't yeah. take long for publishers to, to just do the do the maths yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i realized yeah that this was a, a big market and not a tiny market at all I think now is a good time to talk about your next choice. Uh, speaking of LGBT commercial successes. So yes, next on my list is, is a pretty shameless one, really. Um, Tales of the City, uh, by, by which I mean the whole series, not just the first volume. Um, Armistead, like Alan, is, is an old friend and became a friend through his books. But this, this series completely changed my my writing approach. I don't write like Armistead at all, but what I learned from reading Armistead's books was that actually you must be totally unapologetic in writing about sexuality. You must just be honest and people respond to that honesty. And if you write it in a very polite way, if you use you know, good language, good English, whatever, um, people will trust you. They trust that your tone and they will then follow you into unexpected places. And it was, I think, it took me a while um, to calm down and stop writing overtly comic novels because I realized that actually my truer voice, although I, I love, I know my books are quite funny at times, but I think my truer voice is darker than that. And um, I, I'm interested in sadness and passion and stuff like that, you know, melodrama even. Um, and I think thanks to the lessons I learned from Tales of the City, ironically, I didn't start writing more comedy. I started going darker, going into the dark place. And I, I was aided in this partly by a breakthrough in my editors. I had a, a series of different editors and I had very bad luck um, after my experience at Chatham Windows when I, I was headhunted by HarperCollins, which was lovely. And they brought out all my backlist. And for the first time I had a, um, a uniform edition but then I, I had very bad luck there with my editors, um, not least because one of them committed suicide where we barely started work together. And, but I finally got this amazing editor, Patricia Park, sadly now dead, who was um, a legendary uh, lesbian and um, hugely gifted and very, very shrewd. And she took me on one side, even before she had become my editor when she was just a kind of fan and said, you know, she was quite drunk at the time. She said, Call me. At a she said, you know what's wrong with your books, Patrick? I was like, oh God, okay, tell me. Um, and she said, you, you're, you're, you're being dishonest. 
you're skating over the pain. And I, I took note of that and started finally, the first novel I wrote for her was Rough Music, which I think was published in 1999. And I turned 40, I was kind of grown up. Um, but that was the first book in which thanks to her encouragement, I really went into the dark places and I wrote about um, my own family, very honestly, um, although thinly disguised. But I also wrote about the things that I realized I'd been avoiding writing about up till then, like the experience of being a gay child, which is uh, something I was very nervous of doing, but I'm, my God, I'm glad I did it because it got me a very full mailbag. And it's still not a thing you read about much because people are they're, they're, they're terrified of it. Um, and I wrote also, I think quite honestly about um, the damage done by well-meaning parents to gay children, which again, you know, it wasn't a comfortable thing to write, but, but Patricia kept pushing me back. And she did this repeatedly with the novels I wrote for her. Um, she could always tell when I was skating over the pain that she put it and, and would say, no, no, come back and do this. So I suppose Armistead started me on that path by showing me that I had to be more honest. And Patricia finished the job by saying, no, you know, you've got to go into the dark room. You can always come out again, but you, you've got to go in there and tell us what you see. Um, Armistead wrote, I think it was like seven novels in the Tales of the City series, but it was over quite a long period of time that they were written. Yes, yes, they changed hugely because the first ones were, were not written as novels. They were written as, as daily episodes yeah. in the San Francisco Chronicles. So they have a, a zippy freshness to them that was born of, of him really not knowing one episode to the next what he was going to write. Um, and he tried his best to keep that flavour going in what then became published as, as full novels, as conventional novels. Um, and people are, his readers, are, they're very loyal, but they're often quite brutal about them. And they'll say when they think one didn't work, how I know a lot of, a lot of his readers in England didn't like the one that was basically set in England because of course they, they missed Barbary Lane. They wanted to be in this, this dream world of this wonderful boarding house. Um, and I know, you know because we're friends and, and we, we keep in touch, I know he's now working, funnily enough, on a, um, another English volume. He is writing the story of Mona and what she gets up to when she's Lady of the Manor in the Cotswolds, because as he's realized, that is his chance to write, finally, um, a novel about AIDS. Because of course he's, he's often ducked ducked around, he doesn't duck, duck the issue, but you know, the full-on suffering of the AIDS epidemic happens around the, the fringes of the Tales episodes. So you know, um, Dr. John dies off, off the page between volumes, yeah. uh, things like that. Whereas Mona will have to deal with it. So uh, for people who loved It's a Sin, this will be Armistead's equivalent. It'll be the same, covering the same period. I, I can't because it's it's a period I remember all too well, and it's also a period in which I was in the It's a Sin world, and that I I was volunteering on the very first AIDS ward in London, um, alongside a lot of very nice female volunteers who had no idea what this disease was really. Um, they'd just always been hospital volunteers, and they were together. We were having to learn very fast indeed. There are often a number of years between your novels 
you're not a, a novel a year kind of guy. Half too slow. How long does it take you to write a, a book? It's hard to quantify, but I seem to produce one roughly every three years. And I think I take about a year just thinking about a book which I'll often do partly while I'm promoting the next one. So I'm currently already thinking in a lot of detail about my next novel, and I'm about to go on a book tour. And by the end of this year, I will have reached the point where I can't bear not to be writing it and it will come out. But I, I've learned over the years, it's very good to have a long thinking period so that when I come to write, I'm not making anything up. It's all in my head. I'm just trying to be really accurate. To, to the story in my head and when I actually get down to the writing I'm pretty quick because I, I get so obsessed um, but I'm quite old-fashioned I, I write in longhand so um, it's a very messy kind of organic process I have these hardback notebooks where I write what's going to be the final prose story one side of the book but then if you flip it over on the back it's just a mass of notes and that note that note taking goes on and on right the way through the writing process because I I have fresh ideas and scribble and uh, it's it works for me I, I occasionally demonstrate and show it to, to students and see them looking completely horrified as if I'm <laughs> suggesting that they write with a quill and vellum <laughs> but I, I always recommend inky writing to people I think there's something very liberating about turning off your computer um, and there's something very direct but about holding a pen I know most of us now have terrible handwriting because we've got so out of the habit but there is something there's a connection between your fingers and your brain that gets lost when you're typing I think it helps focus the mind as well. Not having the the laptop there, you can, you can, you can't just be tempted to go and quickly check exactly. what being said on Twitter or exactly or looking at kittens in fancy dress. Or <laughs> and and it, but it's also a very the the cumbersome thing of having to write with ink. It's also a useful break. It stops you writing too fast because I I know when I type, I'm a very fast typist, and I often. It gets very facile. I, 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 I forget who it was who criticised somebody's writing by saying that's not writing, that's typing. Um, but it, it, I think a lot of us recognise that occasionally at the typewriter or the, the computer you, you produce prose too, too readily and that there's something more thoughtful about writing with the pen in your hand. So I, I recommend it. <laughs> What's your next choice? Okay, my next choice is uh, the most extraordinary novel which had a, a very big influence on me and nobody has heard of it and as far as I know it is out of print and the writer has disappeared so completely I now begin to wonder whether it was the pseudonym and that actually the writer was Jeanette Winterson or somebody writing as a man who knows um, it's called English Weather and it's by Neil Ferguson and you should all go out and try and find it in secondhand bookshops because it's completely amazing and very very moving. It does that very modernist thing that um, Wilkie Collins first did, I think, which is to tell a story from multiple viewpoints and in multiple time frames and in multiple voices. So it's the story of one man, a very good man. And that in itself is an achievement because it's very hard to make good people interesting. But what it does so brilliantly is to 
tell the story of this one person through a kind of jigsaw of other narratives. So all the different people you hear from are actually telling what they think is their own story. But you, the reader, piece it together and realize that this central figure changes everybody's lives who he has an encounter with. So it's, on one level, it's incredibly moving because it's a novel about goodness and the way goodness can be very powerful in a very quiet way. Um, but it's technically brilliant, I think, as well. I don't, I do not to this day understand why it's not being taught for GCSE and why we don't all know it. And I promise it does exist because I have a hardback of it. I, I reviewed it. Um, anyway, it had a huge effect on me and I shamelessly mimicked well, I didn't mimic it, but I, I, I took courage from what he does, what Neil Ferguson does in that book, when I came to write my novel Notes from an Exhibition. Because Notes from an Exhibition similarly tells one woman's story, but from lots of different points of view and different time frames, And it, it can be confusing to the reader because you're getting all, each chapter is like a short story and they gradually build up into a complete picture, but you have to bear with it and you have to carry these different strands in your head. Um, and I'm a great believer in making readers do some work. I think this is what makes readers give of themselves emotionally when they read a book. So I've never been interested in beach reads because for me, they, you, they require no work from the reader. So I, I'd rather watch television if I get to do that. Um, I love books that make me work. And, Notes of an exhibition, it really paid off because it was the book of mine that was first chosen by Richard and Judy for their, in those days, television-based book club, which was huge. We forget just how powerful it was. It got me, well, the day, the day they featured Notes of an exhibition on their sofas, it got 100,000 readers. So that's 100,000 readers I didn't have before. They just, Incredible. overnight, they were there. And, yeah, they're short of winning the Booker Prize or the Costa, that there are not many things out there that have that kind of effect. It was just amazing. Um, and I was particularly amazed because it was such an uncommercial novel. This is a novel about you know, a woman with profound bipolar disorder who's a painter and damages her family. Um, but it doesn't have, a, doesn't have much plot really beyond the woman's life. And her children but it, it's and it's told in this very spiky piecemeal way so i was completely blown away that they they, they picked it um, and it i then went on to write a, a sort of sibling novel to that a perfectly good man which has exactly the same structure but is about a man instead of a woman and about faith instead of creativity and i think those are the two novels i i remain most proud of Partly because they were so bloody hard to write, um, you know, that sustaining that kind of difficult structure took a lot of brain power, um, <laughs> which I'm not sure I could muster again now. I'd love to try, but I'm, I'm hugely indebted, not just to Richard and Judy, but to Neil Ferguson, whoever he or indeed she might be for that novel English weather, because without that I wouldn't have had the idea. You're quite right. Uh, I had never heard of him, and I uh, I googled him before before we 
talked and the book is out of print and I can find no information on it and uh, <laughs> even on Amazon the, the, you go to the page on Amazon and there's no picture of the book I don't know what it looks no. like you just can't no, no, it's, it's very weird but I think if you look on a books you might find a copy well I'm gonna have to look it up because it sounds very yes, do 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 it's amazing it's amazing by the rights reissue it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um you you said about how notes from an exhibition and then a perfectly good man were kind of challenging books for you and, and a little bit in terms of structure outside of the norm is there a an experimental sort of structure that you haven't yet played with that you'd like to give a go oh that's a very good question I mean I've the thing I've only done once which isn't at all experimental um is to write in the first person and I'm not terribly comfortable doing that. I think I'm quite an old fashioned writer. I like the third person and I like the past the story. Because for me, that, that is just the, the voice of storytelling. It's what I grew up with. Um, I recently read an amazing uh, first novel called Tiepolo Blue by James Carhill. And that's, uh, no, it's not out yet, but it's very, very good. Uh, queer art historical very Hollinghursty sort of novel but that's all written in the present tense and to start with I thought, oh god I'm never going to be able to read this present tense is exhausting it's like having a child talking at you <laughs> with but it drew me in and it made me think oh actually maybe I should be less stuffy and have a go um it is it is hard you get into these habits with writing I, I I've also often thought about doing um a Harold Pinter and writing a story backwards um, because in his not in his play Betrayal and actually Sondheim does it brilliantly in Merrily We Roll Along. Um, in both cases, they tell a story backwards, so you end up with a, a happy ending. That's of course not a happy ending because you know actually it's going to go forwards into complete misery and breakdown. Um, <laughs> but you're, you're ending on a tone of youthful optimism. Uh, it's but then I think well they've done it so um, how could I do it differently. I'd just be doing the same. What's your final choice? Okay, my, I thought I must have some non-fiction in here. And so I, I, I've picked one of the books by the great cookery writer, Jane Grigson, The Fruit Book. But I could equally well have picked her book called The Vegetable Book. I stumbled on these when I was a teenager. Um, I had in some ways a, a rather kind of troubled childhood and teenage period because my poor mother was desperately ill. When she, when I was 10, she and I were in a really bad car crash, which very nearly killed her. Um, and instead of which it basically turned her into a, an invalid until further notice. And I rather stepped into the breach because my father couldn't cook and my brother didn't like cooking and my other brother and sister had left home. And I, I um, kind of filled this I stepped into this gap I tied on my mother's apron in a way and learned to cook and discovered I loved it I still am passionate about it but what, the other thing that happened almost simultaneously was discovering the joy of gardening because both my parents were very keen gardeners and especially when she became so frail I, I would often help my mother or do things for her around the garden and again discovered this was a language I totally understood and um, I could very happily to this day spend an entire year doing nothing but gardening. Um, 
and I still regularly spend an entire day doing nothing but cooking. That two things I absolutely love. Jane Grigson, though, to get back to her book, um, she was one of the great cookery writers in that even if you don't like cooking, you will like her books because she writes in a, this very witty, scholarly way. And what the fruit book and the vegetable book do beautifully is a very simple idea. They, they take all the known likely fruits, for instance, and they put them in alphabetical order. So you begin with apricot and go right through to zucchini or something. And each chapter begins with a, a lovely little woodcut of the fruit or vegetable in question, and then a three or four page essay by Jane Grigson about every possible aspect of this thing, how it's grown, what the best ones are, which famous people wrote lovely poems about it. And, and then she'll do a very practical bit about how to prepare it. So it needs peeling or boiling or whatever. Um, and then she'll give some recipes involving featuring that particular ingredient. And it's a very different take where we're so used to cookery books, especially when I was a boy, they were so traditional. They would have a chapter on sauces, a chapter on fish, a chapter on meat, chapter on side dishes and chapter on puddings and then preserving all the time. They were very formulaic. And she changed all that with these two books and she turned the ingredients into a narrative of their own and made them the stars of the show. And it, in a way, they, they're books that you don't, you can read and I do use them as cookery books, but you can equally just take them to bed and read them from beginning to end. It's something that she was doing long, I mean, Nigella does it now. Nigella writes beautifully and wittily about her love of food and about the ingredients. And Jane Grigson was doing it even before her. Um, so I, I'm, I hope they're still in print. And if they're not, I hugely recommend them to, to, to gardeners and to cooks. But there's a kind of hybrid I was saying, the gardener cook. Christopher Lloyd was a gardener cook. Um, and I, I love the two things. And I love now that I've got the space here growing things I am going to eat later. So when I, when I, this time of year, I'm buying in seed packets and they're often to do with specific salads or recipes I would like to make later in the year. And there's something delicious about that slow preparation that I know the seed I plant now, I will be eating the fruits of that sometime in June or July. It's, it's a, a, a very kind of meditative pleasure. If you were to write your own non-fiction book, what topic would you consider yourself an expert on? Where would you go with it? Oh, it would be either gardening or cooking, I think. <laughs> um, I'd love to write about music as well, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm practically more of a, I think I'm pretty good at gardening. I would probably write a novel, I'd write a book, oh, whoops, a book <laughs> about the challenge of windy gardening, because I've, with Aidan, I've created a garden here at Land's End that is, it's in the, what is officially the second windiest place in the British Isles. <laughs> uh, and it's thriving, but my God, wind is a challenge. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. The Windy Gardener, it might the have that. <laughs> yeah. Which is quite nice because my nickname at school was Windy Gale, inevitably. So, uh. of course. <laughs> What would you say of these seven books that you've talked about today was the one that was most important to you, the one that changed your life the most? I think probably The Wizard of Earthsea, because it shaped me at an age when I was still so malleable. Um, and I think it, 
it's the first time I remember noticing the power a book could have, how, how fiction can just wrap you around and take you into another world. And I never lost that, although it was many years before I, I, I decided I, I was going to write, I became a writer, I think psychologically, when I was about nine or 10, it's something I, I wrote a lot as a schoolboy. Um, and luckily I wasn't too encouraged or praised. I was just left to get on with it. And I think that's partly thanks to Ursula Le Guin and, and the way the spell she cast over me. What's, uh, what's next for you? We've, we've discussed Mother's Boy is coming out or is out now. You're going on a tour and- Going you're... on a tour. And then parallel, parallel to that tour, uh, interrupting us at regular intervals. Um, I'm working on a very exciting theatre project based on my last novel, Take Nothing With You. So oh. I'm, I'm collaborating with a very exciting young theatre director um, and a, a big team um, to do a, a play based on that. But it's the challenge is we want to have lots and lots of live music on stage. So it's weirdly like a musical in that um, we'll be, I'll be writing it with a view to all the performers being able to play a stringed instrument. So that when you get to the scene where the characters are learning the Schubert string quintet, they will be playing it on stage. Wow. Um, total immersion. So that's very exciting. And then parallel to that, I'm also working on a musical based on Man in the Orange Shirt. So um, that doesn't yet have a producer. So if a producer is listening to this, who's interested, get in touch. Um, but we, I'm working with a fantastic composer, uh, Christopher Dickens, who has written the most wonderful, wonderful songs. And I've done almost all the script now. Um, and it's been a really interesting process because I've rather than just taking the one episode and then the second episode and doing them one after the other, I'm combining the two. So you get the two stories unfurling simultaneously on stage and you get the same actors playing characters in both stories. So that sets up all sorts of lovely parallels. And also it means you can have characters from one period singing with characters from another. So the young Flora and old Flora get to do a heartbreaking duet. Oh. <laughs> so that's exciting. So yeah, I've got a very full and happy year. And then I'm writing another novel, which is broadly speaking, a sequel to A Place Called Winter. Um, but don't get all excited imagining lumberjacks in Canada because <laughs> it will be largely set in the UK in 1953, because it's a novel about what happened when my great grandfather, Harry Kane, sold the farm in Canada and came back to England, thinking that his long lost daughter, my granny, would take him in. So it, it's a novel less about Harry than about Harry's effect on two married couples, my grandmother and her husband, who were living at Liverpool prison, which he was the governor of, and my fairly newly married mother and father, who were living in Durham prison, where my dad was training to be a governor. So it's a novel about imprisonment and about the Queen's coronation year. So watch this space. <laughs> I've never yet got the knack of setting a novel somewhere like, I don't know, Barbados, so I can go <laughs> lovely glamorous research trips. So for this, this novel, I'll be going to Liverpool and Durham a great deal. Lovely places, I'm sure. Lovely places. <laughs> Yeah, not quite the same as uh, somewhere hot and glamorous. Uh, is there a date for when we might see Take Nothing With You on the stage? 
oh, probably at the earliest next year, sometime. Okay. Um, I, I hope. I mean, it's got it's got very grown up. Uh, Trafalgar Studios are backing it, so it, it's wow. got grown up money behind it. Um, it will probably be premiered initially in Bristol, where the novel is set, which is rather lovely, and then I hope we'll bring it to London. So brilliant. So there's a lot to look forward to in due course. Yeah, there's lots to look forward to. Um, I hope so, yes. Patrick Gale, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Alex. It's been a treat. My guest on this episode of Shelf Life was Patrick Gale, and his latest novel, Mother's Boy, is available to order right now at birthbooks.co.uk. Join me again next time when another guest will be exploring their shelf life.